a number of years ago when I was in the first few months of learning how to be a grandparent, our first grandchild, Andrew, was visiting us with his parents for a few days. It had been 25 years since I'd experienced a, day, a baby in daily close-up detail, and I was taking it all in. I missed a lot the first time around. I was determined not to miss that much this time. And one day it was just Andrew, his mother, and me in the living room. His mother was reading a book. Andrew had been practicing his American adaptation of the Australian crawl for a few weeks and was getting close to perfection. I was sitting on the floor watching with wonder this small body perform a series of highly skilled muscular operations calling for the precise coordination of eyes and arms and legs. He had a tennis ball that he would roll around and follow, crawl after. The ball caromed nicely off the walls and furniture, providing challenge and variety for showing off to his grandfather his finely honed skills of crawling. Nothing I've ever seen on a baseball or a hockey, hockey rink was like what I was watching. Admiration. I watched Andrew's athletic process of crawling, prowess at crawling. This went on for 10 or 15 minutes, and just then the ball that he was crawling after rolled under a dry sink and disappeared from view. The moment it disappeared, Andrew stopped, sat back on his well-diapered bottom, and looked around for something else to do. I looked at his mother. What's wrong with Andrew? My extravagant admiration had quickly become anxiety. Why did he quit chasing the ball? Was there a missing gene in his DNA? Was he showing early signs of dyslexia? A short attention span? His mother, without bothering to look up from her book, said coolly and just a bit condescendingly, I thought, Andrew has not yet acquired object permanence. <laughs> what does that mean? It means if he can't see it, it doesn't exist. It took a few seconds for that to sink in, and then I said, oh, I've got a whole congregation like that. I'd never heard that phrase before. Oh, it's, I forgot to turn this on. Excited about Lagos and... <laughs> I had never heard that phrase before. Object permanence. We talked about it, his mother and I. She told me during these early years of his life, early months of his life, virtually everything in Andrew's life required immediate gratification. Feeding, comforting, diapering. There was no waiting. There was no reality for Andrew other than what he could see and taste and smell and feel and hear. And most of what he saw, tasted, smelled, felt, and heard was his mother. If she was going to be a good mother, she had to be there physically with her body, around the clock, day and night. 
And then she let me know that if she continued to be a good mother in that way, past a certain point, she would become a bad mother. How could you be a bad mother? You could never be a bad mother. This mother, who was my daughter-in-law, was as good at mothering as Andrew was good at crawling. But she led me to understand that her good mothering would become bad mothering if Andrew never learned object permanence. If he never learned to deal with her absence, the same way he had learned to deal with her presence. Most of the world was not at that moment accessible to his senses. If she insisted upon being indispensable to him, she would narrow his life to only what he could see of her. I'm always a little surprised when I come across yet another way in which biology provides a grounding for spirituality, but here it was again. And in the unlikely psychological abstraction, object permanence. Through that conversation that day and learning about a critical item in child development, I acquired a fresh perspective regarding the starting point of the uniquely human adventure that finds its fullest expression in the Christian life. I'm calling this starting point square one, the place where we begin to acquire object permanence. This is the place from which we launch the distinctly human journey. The first few months of our lives are spent in getting our basic needs met so that we can journey. Many of you have had analogous experiences in, say, going for a backpacking trip to the mountains. You spend days getting ready for mountains you can't see, laying out the proper clothing, measuring out quantities of food which you're not yet going to eat, making sure the tent is waterproofed, checking the first aid kit for essentials, and then you're at the trailhead. Up to this point, nearly everything has been under your control. Most of what you will be dealing with next is not yet visible, but uncertain, unpredictable, changes in the weather, the appearance and behavior of wild animals, your own physical endurance, the mood of your hiking companions. You are at square one. Up to square one, you live by sight. After square one, you live by faith. Basic biology now gives way to basic spirituality. No longer restricted to feelings and immediacy, we are launched into exploration and participation in the immense world of memory, anticipation, waiting, trust, belief, sacrifice, love, loyalty, faithfulness, none of which can be reduced to what you can see and handle. None of these things that go up into making what is distinctively and characteristically human can be possessed, boxed up, put on a shelf. They all must be entered into. Most of is is not where we can touch it, put it into our mouths, wrap up in comfort. Square one is the place from which we begin learning how to live with absence with the same ease with which we have come to live with presence. The generic word for this is faith. In its classic and never yet improved upon definition, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is essential to keep in mind that our five senses do not become less important at this point. In fact, they may even become more important because they are no longer limiting. Our spiritual life, that is to say our Christian life, 
is no less physical, sensual, immediate than our biological life, but it is not confined to the physical. Our bodies, instead of being prisons in which we're locked up on ourselves, are open roads along which we set out on our travels toward which eye hath not seen nor ear heard. Biology is not fate, as Freud would have, have us to believe. It's rather a free pass to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, as the psalmist has it. We do not leave biology behind when we stand on square one. What we do is acquire object permanence. We no longer have to see anything to know that it exists. Well, Andrew acquired this quite soon and very well. I recall visiting him in his home on his sixth birthday. I came across him in the backyard wielding a sword, shouting anathemas, knocking the heads off dandelions. I asked him what he was doing. He told me he was fighting giant trolls. And I thought, as he said this, there was a note of condescension in his voice, similar to what I heard in his mother. <laughs> the characteristic element of square one is this. God said. There is, of course, much else, too. As we step into square one, the entire sweep of heaven and earth opens up before us. We're not capable of handling it all at once. It's best to take it into small bits and pieces. A story here, a prayer there, a song, a dream. Words are our primary tools for getting our bearings in this world, most of which we can't see, hear, touch, large, expanding, mysterious existence, which is so much larger, more intricate, more real even, than we are. We learn the word ball and by means of the word acquire the ability to experience the reality of the tennis ball even after it rolls under the dry sink and we cannot see it. As we add words to our working vocabulary, we become conversant with more and more reality. The absolutely indispensable word that we learn at square one is God. We learn the word God and acquire the means of experiencing everything that is beyond us connectedly real and personally congenial. We don't learn this immediately, suddenly, absolutely. There are superstitions, misunderstandings, twists and turns in the imagination, advances and regressions, but we learn it. Anybody can learn it. For that which can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Now the unknown takes precedence over the known. That which we can't see accounts for what we can see, and this mysterious unknown, unseen, is personal, purposeful God. Purposeful. There is coherence in design and plan previous to my experience of life. And personal, there is something or other that connects me with that is what is more powerful than I am. God is more than I am, not less, not just more powerful or more wise, but more person. More of whatever it is that makes me capable of thinking, believing, loving, hoping, trusting. All these great invisibles that I become aware of 
on square one. And God. There is no single term that is as common and indispensable to human beings. There is no language in which the word does not occur. There is hardly a moment in our lives when the word does not figure in some way or other in the way we account for ourselves and the world around us, whether through denial or modification or blasphemy or adoration, but God. In scientific theory and philosophy, the criterion of simplicity is critical. Richard Swinburne is the Nolith Professor of the Christian Religion at Oxford University. He is one of our premier contemporary witnesses to the Christian faith. And the central thrust of his work revolves around this criterion of simplicity. The world, no matter from which direction you approach it, from the scientific or the religious, is amazingly diverse, with millions of details to be accounted for. Now, anyone can come up with a Rube Goldberg theory that explains by the most complicated mental machinery some aspect or other of what's going on. Some philosophical work consists of just such intellectual monstrosities, but the most convincing and simplest theory and useful theory is the simplest. The theory that uses the simplest vocabulary and the fewest variables that lead us to expect the diverse phenomena that form the, ev form the evidence that we face. Richard Swinburne wrote a trilogy of books that applied this criterion of simplicity to the word God. What he has done, in effect, is account for all the material that our scientific and philosophical studies come up with and account for it with the simple profundity God. He has returned us to our first insights and basic experiences of object permanence. Professor Swinburne and my grandson Andrew tell me the same thing and in virtually the same language. Return us to square one. But you will notice that I am using the, word, the verb return and not bring. We were there once, but it often happens that we are there no longer. Square one is the place in which we realize that there is a huge world that we have not yet seen, an incredible creation that we cannot account for, a complex reality that is not defined or controlled by our experience of it. There is more, far, far more. Our experience, while authentic enough, is not encompassing. There is far more that we don't know than what we do know. We are enveloped in, to use one of the classic phrases in our tradition, in a cloud of unknowing. There's something wonderfully exhilarating about this, a sense of space and time, of mystery, of beauty. We become explorers, adventurers, knights errant. But there's also something seriously disappointing, the realization that we are not the center of the universe. In an infantile state, and this is true regardless of our chronological age, we have the perception that we are at the center of everything. Our needs take precedence over everything, absolutely everything. Our appetites, our welfare, our comfort, we are gods and goddesses, worshiped and adored and served. Then we go back to square one and we're told we must wait our turn. 
or that our behavior is quite despicable and we must go to our room, or that we must share our toys with our sisters. There's a lot more going on than me. We experience finitude, and we don't like it. For anyone who has had a taste of glory as a sovereign queen or an almighty king, it is quite, quite a come down to be treated as a brat with brad manners. For anyone who has acquired enough money to be able to demand and pay for any conceivable whim, it is a shock to be told to walk away from it and start keeping company with a homeless and jobless itinerant Palestinian peasant preacher. And for anyone, and this is us, who through long disciplined study has mastered an important body of knowledge, it is an impertinent insult to be assigned nursing care to a victim of random street violence, a neighbor who you didn't know was your neighbor, didn't even know his name. When we first arrive at square one, we are breathless before the unguessed splendors of infinity stretching out endlessly. This is wonderful. And then we begin to realize the corollary. If there is such a thing as infinity, I am not it. I am finite. If there is God, then there is no room for me as God. And the virtually unanimous response to this realization is some form of either narcissism or Prometheanism. Narcissism is the attempt to retreat from square one back into the spiritual sovereignty of self. Forget infinity. Forget mystery. Cultivate the wonderful self. It might be a small world, but it's my world. <laughs> totally mine. Prometheanism is the attempt to detour around square one into the spirituality of infinity and get a handle on it, get control of it, make something of it. All that spirituality sitting around idle needs managing. Prometheanism is practical. Prometheanism is entrepreneurial. Prometheism, metheanism, that's a long word, <laughs> is energetic and ambitious. Prometheanism wants to put all that power and beauty to good use. Most of us, much of the time, can be found to be practicing some variation on narcissism or Prometheanism. It goes without saying that far too much spirituality is a combination of narcissism and Prometheanism, with the proportions carefully customized to suit our personal temperaments and circumstances. And that is why I use the word return. It's back to square one, back to the place of wonder and the realization of infinity and eternity, the worship of God. The primary way in which we counter our stubborn propensities to narcissism and Prometheanism is by cultivating humility, learning to be just ourselves, keeping close to the ground, practicing the human, getting our fingers in the humus, the rich, loamy, loamy garden dirt out of which we've been fashioned, and then listen. Because returning to square one is not only the return to a realization of God, but also listening to what God says. God said. Did you listen? Do you listen? Listening is linked not only lexically, akuo and hupakuo, but spiritually to obedience, to response. 
Language is the primary means we have of acquiring object permanence. The discovery that there's a word ball that refers to that round, green, fuzzy object that rolled under the dry sink is a key to dealing with the reality of things unseen. Words attest to the reality and distinctiveness of people and things and events that are outside the realm of immediate sensory experience. As you and I develop facility in words, our world expands. Before long, we're inhabiting remote centuries, dealing with faraway continents, having fascinating conversations with men and women in the cemeteries. So it's not surprising that God, who is far beyond what we can ask or think, should deal with us by means of language. God speaks. For Christians, basic spirituality is not only a noun, God, but also a verb, said or says. My purpose right now is not to argue this. It has been skillfully and competently reasoned and argued by our best Christian minds, some of them right here at SPU. What I want is simply to call our attention to the obvious, the accepted, the basic. When we go back to square one, we listen to God speak, and we do need reminding. For just as the realization of the world of spirit that centers in the person and power of God frequently results in a proliferation of spiritualities that attempt to become or use God, also the acquisition of language that enables response and participation in the world of spirit develops into spiritual talk that bypasses God. Most, but certainly not all, of the spiritual talk that goes on in and out of Christian churches is of, is of this kind. It is not listening to God. It is not answering God. It is not believing in the Word of God. It is chatter. Sometimes it's very interesting chatter. Often it's fascinating chatter. But it is our commentary on our experience with the spiritual, not a proclamation of God's address to us from the Spirit world. We give witness, we testify endlessly, but more often than not, we're talking about ourselves, not God. It is not proclamation, which is the basic form that language takes about God, but gossip. The book of Job is our classic expose of this kind of thing. Job is back to square one. God said, but the noun God and the verb said are separated in the book of Job by a lot of spiritual talk that has nothing to do with God. Job has no question that he's dealing with God. He's faced with mystery. None of the familiar ways of accounting for his life work anymore. He is confronted with unknowing. He will be satisfied by nothing less than God speaking to him, a God who tells him what's what a God who reveals, and God does speak out of the whirlwind, and Job is satisfied. God does not answer Job's questions, does not explain the mystery, but he speaks and Job listens, and that is enough. It is always enough. But most of the text of Job is taken up with the spiritual talk of Job's religious advisors, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. Almost all of these, what these four friends say is true. But at the same time, almost nothing of what they say is true. 
because they're not listening to God. They're not participating in listening to and answering God. I have been engaged in this ministry of word and sacrament for 53 years now, 53 years now, and when I stop to think about it, I get depressed when I realize how much of the religious and theological and moral language that I've had to listen to has been from the lips of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. I know that you've also had to put up with it. I think you know what I mean. And I'm getting mighty tired of it, and I want to use every chance that I have while I have the chance to get my friends and colleagues back to square one and God said. This is hard to get into our heads, and we need a lot of reminding. I'm reminding you. We habitually talk to ourselves and about ourselves. We don't listen. If we do listen to one another, it's often with the purpose of getting some, something we can use in our turn. Much of our listening is a form of politeness, courteously waiting our turn to talk about ourselves. But in relation to God especially, we must break this habit and let Him speak to us. God not only is, God says. Christian spirituality, in addition to being an attentive spirituality, is a listening spirituality. Words are our primary tools for getting our bearing in a world, most of which we, most, much of which we can't see, will never touch this large, intricate, expanding universe. When Andrew learned the word ball, he had a means for dealing with an object he couldn't see. When I learn the word God, I am able to deal with a person I cannot see. God uses words to train us in object permanence. But now I want to amend the phrase from object permanence to subject permanence. God is not an object we can deal with, but a subject who speaks to and addresses me. It is in learning to listen to God speak that I become familiar with and participate in basic spirituality, which is always, always personal and participatory. I said earlier that when we get to square one, we don't leave um, biology and embrace spirituality. Our physical senses do not become less important. They become more important because we're not limited by them. When we discover that God reveals himself by word, we're back in the realm of the sensory again, a word spoken by a mouth, lips, tongue, throat, heard by ears, in the case of the written words, seen with eyes. Once the word is uttered and heard or written and read, it enters into us in such a way that transcends the sensory. A word is, or can be, a revelation from one interior to another. What is inside me can get inside you. God's grace, His grace, means that God's word is also written. And that makes Holy Scripture the comprehensive text for Christian spirituality. Holy Scripture, which most of you are employed and charged with giving to others formationally, Holy Scripture is the listening post for listening to God's Word. Something remarkable takes place when we return to square one, to the place of attentive adoration and intentional listening, a terrific infusion of energy within us, a release of adrenaline in our souls which becomes obedience, 
The reason is that the word that God speaks is the kind of word that makes things happen. When God speaks, it is not in order to give us information on the economy so that we all know how to do our financial planning. When God speaks, it is not as a fortune teller looking into our personal future and satisfying our curiosity regarding romantic prospects or the best horse to bet on. No, when God speaks, it is not to explain all the things that have not been, we've not been able to find answers to from our parents or in books or from reading tea leaves. God's word is not, in essence, information or gossip or explanation. God's word makes things happen. The imperative is the primary verb form in Holy Scripture. The first chapter of the first book in our scriptures opens with a terrific salvo of explosive imperatives. God said, let there be ten times. And then the imperatives pile up, page after page after page. Go, come, repent, believe, be still, be healed. Get up, ask, love, pray. The intended consequence of the imperative is believing obedience. I love the psalm phrase, I will run in the way of your commandments when thou givest me understanding. Yes, run. Square one with its worshipful attentiveness and obedient listening that gets us in all the operations of the Trinity, everything in creation, everything in salvation. We know who we are and where we are and who God is and where he is. At that place and in that condition, there's an inward gathering and concentration of energy that on signal from God's imperative expresses itself in precisely obedient running in the way of God's commandments. There is nothing grudging or hangdog or foot-dragging in the biblical narrations of obedience. Think rather of your golden retriever racing off to catch a frisbee and returning it to you tail-wagging. St. Mark gives us a sharply etched, detailed picture of this aspect of God's word when he tells us the story of the healing of Bartimaeus at Jericho the city where a millennium earlier, Jesus' namesake, Joshua, in Greek, Joshua is Jesus, signaled the acts of salvation and deliverance that launched the campaign that turned the promises of God into actual possession of the land. Jesus is walking in the footsteps of his namesake, Joshua, when he enters Jericho to launch his final campaign, going up to Jerusalem and against the forces of darkness and then by means of crucifixion and resurrection, takes possession of the country of salvation. Jericho is a square one kind of place. And here's the event in square one, this square one, that I want to highlight. As Jesus passes through Jericho, Bartimaeus is sitting at the roadside begging. He hears that Jesus is there and calls out for help, for mercy. Jesus hears him, stops, and calls for him. When Bartimaeus receives the summons, there's not a moment of hesitation. He leaps to his feet and goes to Jesus. The verb leaps, anapadesis, this is the only occurrence in the New Testament, catches our attention. Bartimaeus jumps up like a sprinter at the signal of a starting pistol. He explodes from his place and is off and running. Yes, run in the way of thy commandments. Bartimaeus at square one, poised and ready, 
And so when Jesus hears them and speaks his imperative, call him to me. And then his second imperative, go, your faith has made you well. He does what you do at square one. You believing, you believingly obey. You're off and running. Square one is not a place where we all sit around discussing what to do next. It is not an oasis of repose from the strenuousness, strenuous business of pilgrimage. It is not a return to inaction when the action gets too much for us. It is the place to which we return so that our faith is God-initiated and our discipleship is Christ-defined, our obedience is spirit-infused. So we return to square one and listen to God's word. The obedience that follows will certainly change our lives. Repentance and commitment, belief and faithfulness, all the energy-filled actions that are initiated at square one. Do not run in the ruts of our willful habits and routines. They're transformative. Jesus takes us, along with Bartimaeus, to Jerusalem and the cross and the resurrection. We do not progress in the Christian life becoming more competent, more knowledgeable, more virtuous, more energetic. We do not advance in the Christian life by acquiring expertise. Each time, each day, and many times each day, we return to square one. God said. I like the way Karl Barth puts it. We are constantly thrown back on the, on the start and always opening up afresh. We're always beginners. We begin again. We hear Jesus say, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we become as little children. We return to the condition in which we first acquired object and then subject permanence. We go back to square one, and God said, we adore and we listen. All of us have a difficult task, but oh so necessary, insisting and then guiding others into embracing scripture, not informationally, but formationally. I want to simplify your lives. When others are telling you to read more, I want to tell you to read less. When others are telling you to do more, I want to tell you to do less. The world does not need more of you. It needs more of God. Your friends do not need more of you. They need more of God. And you don't need more of you. You need more of God. The Christian life consists in what God does for us, not what we do for God. The Christian life consists of what God says to us, not what we say about God. We also, of course, do things and say things, but if we do not return to square one each time we act, each time we speak, beginning from God and God's word, we'll soon be found to be practicing a spirituality that has little or nothing to do with God. And so it's necessary, if we're going to live this Christian life well, and not just use the term Christian to disguise our narcissistic and Promethean attempts at a spirituality without worshiping God and without being addressed by God, it is necessary to return to square one and adore God and listen to God. Given our sin-damaged memories that render us vulnerable to every latest edition of journalistic spirituality, daily reorientation in the truth revealed in Jesus and attested in scripture is required. And given our ancient predisposition to reduce every scrap of divine revelation that we come across 
into a piece of moral spiritual technology that we can use to get on in the world and eventually to get on without God, a daily return to a condition of not knowing and non-achievement is required. We have proven time and again that we're not to be trusted in these matters. I'm inviting you to return personally, but also in your classrooms, to square one. And God said, for a fresh start as often as every morning, noon, and night. Amen.